I have had All Star by Smash Mouth and like three different Limp Bizkit songs all in constant rotation in my brain for the last week. So oh. I am, I'm very much ready to not have that anymore. Oh. This podcast does it to me now. I have to listen to certain things for certain weeks, and then they just fucking stay there. Just They're just and they manifesting just, into your little brain cells. Burrow into my brain like parasites. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what now, that's what I call music is. Oh, it's now that's brain, what I call music. It's not just an earworm. It's a brain parasite. Oh, yeah. That's a brain parasite. Yes. There very we go. much. Well, I mean, at least this week we could go into something a little bit more pleasant. For research me, yes. thing that was, I think for both of us, I think we were both very happy to listen through our research. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I was down for all the listening I was doing. Because I think we also cheat by looking at, I don't know if it's cheating, but we looked up artists that we actually like. Yeah. So that's nice. And I discovered a new artist that is more contemporary, mm. which we don't get to talk about much. Mm. And it's a lady. Ooh. And she makes very good music. So I'm now a fan of hers. There you go. See? Some, we're getting something out of this after all, kids. <laughs> Look at us. Welcome to Rock Candy. Hi. Your weekly podcast bringing you sweet treats from the world of music. And this week, we're shaking it up a little bit again. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna give some love. We're going to give some love to somebody who doesn't necessarily get a lot of love. Somebody who kind of gets looked over a lot. They yeah. get laughed at a lot. There's a lot of jokes at their expense. Yeah. We're talking about bassists. Yeah. They do not. They don't get the love that they do and not appreciation the they deserve. Definitely. So we both picked two bassists each that we really wanted to talk about and really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And we are going to discuss a little bit of their lives and a little bit of their techniques for everyone. So maybe you can come out this and be like, yeah, you know what? Bassists. Bases need some love, too. They need their due. Backbone of the band. Right? And this also um, inspired me to pick up my GD bass for the first time in months and start playing again. Mm. So that's nice. Because I really fell off the wagon on that one. This did not inspire me to start learning, but good for you. Ah. <laughs> well, it inspired you to appreciate. So there's that. Also, I mean, I've always appreciated, but yeah, appreciate yeah. more. Yeah, right? Even more, because they deserve it. They really do. Gosh darn it, they deserve it. They do. People like them. <laughs> at do. least at least the four bases that we're talking <laughs> about tonight. They're just fucking Stuart Smalling the shit out of their lives Aww. right now, and that's adorable. It is. But I do think the four that we're talking about do at least get their due. In the, in the grand scheme of... At least the bands that they're in. Mm-hmm. Like, the fandom that follows that band does appreciate what that basis does. Yes. Right? F- at least for one of mine. For the other one, mm. it's 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 a little bit different. It's a little but bit we niche. Can talk. We'll, 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 we'll talk about it we'll later. We'll talk about what we did there. Yeah. Well, my two are definitely beloved in their fandoms. Yes. Like, no question. Although one of them, I don't, I don't know what the fandom's like. Well, I know what the fandom's like for the one of them. <laughs> and it's not respected. And it should be. Aww. We'll get there. Aww. Again, we'll get there. But before we get anywhere, let's also be grateful that not only did we get to listen to good music for our research, we got to find a good IPA. For Finally. Finally. In I a mean, sea of basic to foul IPAs. And, you know. Found a good one. I'm going to be thoroughly honest. 
a lot of the IPAs we drink, we say they're really good. Or even adequate. If we're saying they're adequate, guys. They're bad. They're not great. Um, But this one is actually really fucking good. Yeah, this is good. I could drink this a lot. We basically decided, yes, we can fucks with this. We can fucks with this. Four out of five stars would fucks with again. I mean, it's hard to get a five star for me with a beer. Not with an IPA. With yeah. an IPA. I mean, four out of five is basically perfection as far as IPAs go for me. Yeah, this is close. But yeah. closest yet. So this week we are drinking, I think it's Destihill Brewery. It's D-E-S-T-I-H-L. Destil. Oh, Destihill. <laughs> like Troags. <laughs> Guys, I'm real good pronouncing the words on this. I'm pretty sure it's Destil. Uh, actually makes way more sense than what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, yes, Destil, Destil. I think it's, yeah, sure. One Distill of those. Brewery. Bluey. It's <laughs> Funkin' Groovin'. Or maybe just Funkin' Groovin'. Uh, it is a tart New England style Indian pale ale with grapefruit. And it is very tasty. It's almost like a sour IPA. Which yeah. Which I'm, I'm down with. Like the hops are there, but it's not offensive. It's only 57 IBUs, so that's basically nothing. But it is a 7.2%er, so. It packs a little punch. So good for them. They have everything I want. Yeah, they, they did a good job. Granted, I think this might have been released for like a Grateful Dead thing, but... Well, we're going to co-op that because, well, because we all know how we feel about the Grateful Dead. Yeah. If you don't by now, go listen to our Grateful Dead episode. <laughs> uh, or maybe don't. I don't know. It depends on how much you like Grateful Dead. And how much you want us to like them. And how easily triggered you are. So Yeah, maybe if you're easily triggered... Don't, don't listen to it. Don't listen to it. But I will say funk and groovin' because the bass is funky and groovin'. Funk and groovin'. Fucks and groovin'? Fucks and with this and groovin'. Yeah. That's what's happening with this beer right here. No, it is quite nice, though. I'm happy we got to drink this one. I'm happy that I didn't pick up bass for this episode. <laughs> Which was the easy way out. We yeah. don't take the easy road here. Well, also, I don't know if I could physically drink that beer. It tastes like bass, doesn't it? That's oh. why it's called bass. Is, is that? That's why it's called bass, because it, it tastes like <laughs> a fish. brewed with fish. Oh, oh that's so gross. Brewed why with did I hops, say simico, and fish oil. Ugh, gross. Nope. Gross. That's not why it's called bass. That's not why it's called bass. <laughs> get the fuck out of here. <laughs> right. So let's get into it. And I would like to... um. Open this up with an important question to you, listener. Did you know that Paul McCartney was the bassist in the Beatles? You should. I mean, I know you knew. If you don't, get the fuck out. I know I'm looking at you, but I'm definitely not asking you. I'm definitely asking the listener. Because I'm willing to bet that somebody's listening and be like, Oh, I didn't know Paul McCartney was the bassist. And that's fine. That's why you're here. You're here to learn. God damn it. Edumatainment. Yeah. That's what we're here to do. So... If you're going into this being like, bassist, whatever, what can you teach me? Paul McCartney was the bassist of the Beatles and is arguably one of the biggest musicians in the world. Mm-hmm. So Beatles is one of the biggest bands in the world. I don't think you can really roll your eyes at bassists anymore. Nope. Actually, I still think we both have very <laughs> big hills to climb. So we are going to go ahead and defend our bassist tooth and nail. So let's be honest in the world of music. Many look over one of the key players of the band, the bassist. People joke that anyone can be in that spot, that they're easily replaced, that no one notices them, and when compared to the lead singer and the lead guitarist, they're just fading in the background. 
Like any other instrument, the way the bass is played makes a big difference. Some approach it thinking they can be lazy and just use it as a way to land a spot in the band. So arguably, yeah, the bass could be simple. They don't know the difference between a funky groove or a walking bass line. But a good bassist will truly hone their craft in a way that contributes to the band. They learn to work with the drummer and the rhythm guitarist to make a decent song that much better. Many think the bass is easy and that a bassist is just a failed guitarist. Look, I can go on forever about all the misguided opinions people have about bassists, but instead, we're going to take this episode to give you four examples of bassists who break all of these stereotypes. So if you're going into this as a skeptic, then hopefully by the end of this episode, we can uh, change your mind a little bit. Just a little bit. A little bit. A little respect for bassists. Yeah. And I, I think I think we're starting off strong. Strong out oh, the gate. Oh, we're starting off really strong. Real strong. We're starting with a fucking brigade of awesomeness. Yeah. I don't know what I'm saying. No, I like it. I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> but first on my list, I've granted my list is only two, but um, first on my list, obviously, is fucking Steve Harris from Iron Maiden. Yup. Um, we've already covered Iron Maiden. In mm-hmm. I don't remember what number episode it was, but if you want to hear the whole fucking story of Iron Maiden, go listen to that episode because I, I think it's a good episode. Yeah. And also Iron Maiden's the fucking tits. Yeah, they are. We saw them. It's it's provable. Yeah. They're they, the tits. They're they are older men and they still put on a hell of a show. I was thoroughly impressed with how much movement there was on Oh my that god, stage. there's so much movement. Like it was like, where's Bruce? Where's Bruce? There's Bruce. Nope, there's Bruce. I'm well, here. Got now I'm over here. He's ah. just he's just getting Rockstar energy drinks infused into his goddamn veins. <laughs> That's at all this his point. blood is, is Rockstar energy drinks. I mean, I would believe it the way that man moves. Holy shit. But him and Steve Harris are all over the place. Like Steve Harris actually has portable or the wireless amps now so that he can be more mobile on stage. Yeah. So good for him. Seriously. But I'm not going to go through the whole Iron Maiden Steve Harris history. I'll give you a little bit tidbits. But if you want the whole thing, go listen to our fucking Iron Maiden episode. All right, fuckers. So here it is. <laughs> Steve Harris is one of the most lauded bassists in metal history. As the founder and sole original member of Iron Maiden, this dude has been building the Iron Maiden empire for nearly uh, 45 years. That's so many years. And along the way has gained a reputation for his crazy fucking skills. Most notable is his gallop style of playing. Most notable is his gallop style of playing. Almost sounding like the knights with the coconuts from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes. Yeah, he does. Yeah. (laughs) But really fast. Yeah. This distinct style is especially noticeable on songs like Run to the Hills and The Trooper. You know. So go fucking listen to those songs. Yeah. Those are solid songs. And also it is rather apropos that you would compare it to Monty Python. Bruce Bruce. Bruce Bruce. They're big old nerds. <laughs> They're it's a band of fucking nerds. Which is like love them even more now. Yeah. From Metallica to Opeth, Steve Harris and Iron Maiden have influenced generations of metal musicians and fans, but we may never have gotten this bass virtuoso we know and love because back when Steve was a kid, he almost became a professional soccer player. Oh my god. He was even chosen to train with West Ham United whom he is still a massive fan of and he has a custom Fender bass pre- or Fender Precision bass guitar that has the West Ham United emblem on it. Oh. 
That's he's commitment. He's, he still loves the football. He's got that loyalty going. I bet Steve Harris is a Hufflepuff. Yeah, maybe. I bet. I can see him being a Ravenclaw, though, but I just want everybody to be a Ravenclaw no, because that's the only thing I want. <laughs> that's the only thing I know. I'm a Ravenclaw. I, I don't know, know what it means. about Harry Potter. I'm a Ravenclaw. I'm a Ravenclaw. <laughs> well, with his loyalty, I'm going to say Steve Harris is a Hufflepuff. Okay, sure. And maybe he likes getting high and throwing sweet parties. I bet he... Yeah. 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 Okay. But the rock and roll devil crept into his soul when he was a teenager, and he started to learn to play instruments. First it was drums, but then he soon abandoned that for bass. Logical. It makes sense. Yeah. All in the rhythm category. Yeah. He never took lessons, so his playing style was entirely his own. Nice. This guy seriously has magic fingers. Mm. Holy shit. Oh, I bet he does. All bass players do. Mm. Mm. Ladies. <laughs> or gentlemen. Either one of you. Yeah. It's all good in the hood. Why don't you, uh, you write in? You tell us, guys. <laughs> the levels of speed, precision, and intricacy at which he plays are unrivaled. Mm. Just listen to some of his isolated bass lines on YouTube and let him blow your fucking mind. Yeah. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. But also, listen to this fucking solo. You know, what I appreciate a lot about how he plays, too, is he has, like, that chunky little, like, bass walk yep. where it's just, it's just going, like, doom, 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 and then it kind of goes into, he goes up on the neck and he just goes into these higher octaves, and you almost think it's a guitar complimenting it, but no, it's still just yeah, that's, Steve playing. That's that's a big part of how he plays, is that he almost plays his bass like a guitar. Right. With how intricate and how many notes he can play at one time. Yeah, he's like call and answering himself. Yeah. Which is interesting. But he's, he doesn't make it sound like a guitar. It still sounds like a bass. Right. Which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, he's very he's very creative with how he plays his bass and how he makes it sound. Yeah. It is definitely unique to him. Yeah. And he has been a constant on the metal scene for decades, helping usher in the new wave of British heavy metal. And he worked hard to get there. Iron Maiden was formed on Christmas Day in 1975. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. But they didn't take off right away. They played pubs and halls for years before signing with EMI Records, Steve taking jobs as a street sweeper and architectural draftsman, draftsman just to pay the bills. Woof. Yeah. But Iron Maiden was his brainchild, his baby, and his true passion. He was the main lyricist and composer for most of the band's career, crafting a sound that would be recognizable because of lyrical content and a technique that no one could copy. A lot of his lyrics have historical themes because of an interest in the American West. Nerd! <laughs> which is a topic for a lot of his songs, like Run to, Run to the Hills. Nerd! Nerd! For more, for, for more on nerds, see our Iron Maiden episode. <laughs> 
It also could be why he came up with his galloping technique, as if he's mimicking the sound of horse hooves galloping across the western plains. He's also credited with this new style of playing. First, it's very fast, which has which was something he didn't even do on purpose. He says that he and his bandmates just had so much adrenaline inside of them when they were young that they were just so ready to get themselves out there and it seemed natural to play so fast. Again, veins filled with Rockstar yes, energy drinks. Before Rockstar knew it was Rockstar. Actually, Rockstar is probably just made from the blood I was of just the Iron Maiden members. <laughs> they just draw blood from them before every show. And just put it, can it, I'm put, fine some, with that. put some fizzies in it, I'm fine make with it that. taste like fucking garbage. Smarties. <laughs> Smarties just garbage. Like Smarties. And if you wrote a song that's meant to be fast and then play it at a show where everyone is going nuts for it, the song naturally gets even faster because you're feeding off of the audience's adrenaline. Oh, yeah. So it's just fucking testosterone and adrenaline all day. Testrenaline. <laughs> Testrenaline. Adrenaline? Adrenaline? This this isn't working. This isn't working. I'm usually so good at those portmanteaus, though. I'm I'm pretty sure testrenaline works. Good enough. All right. Good enough. Secondly, twin guitars. Hell yeah. He has. He was hugely influenced by bands like Wishbone Ash and Thin Lizzy, who used twin guitars in a lot of their songs. Third is a pronounced melody. When he writes, the music usually always comes first, then the lyrics. And because the melody is so important, it's something. It's sometimes hard to stuff the lyrics into it and not make it sound awkward. Hmm. So a lot of finagling goes into creating that hook. Well, he has like 20 thesauruses. He's got all the thesauruses. Thesaurusi? Thes- I think it's just thesauruses. Or is it just thesaurus? Thesaurus? I don't know. He's got 20 thesaurus. <laughs> no, thesauruses. <laughs> These three elements, fast finger work, twin guitars, and strong melody, together create the iconic Iron Maiden sound. No one plays bass like Steve Harris. I'm sure he's had his fair share of imitators, but no one can match his expertise. He is truly unrivaled in the heavy metal world. Hmm. A hundred percent. Probably. Yeah. However, I will see your Steve Harris, and I respect and love him, Mm -hmm. and I will raise you. A Cliff Burton of Metallica. I mean, Cliff is great. Cliff is great. But he was influenced by Steve Harris. Of course he was, because he's not a fucking scrub. (laughs) (laughs) And again, we have already talked about Metallica. Yeah. There was a huge two-parter episode, which, that, man. That was back in the day. That was like a year and a half ago. Yeah, all of last year really made me question my like of Metallica. But what (laughs) doesn't make me question it is Cliff. But if you do want more on the Metallica story and uh, just kind of what it was like the Cliff years being in Metallica, go back and listen to that episode. But I am going to kind of break into a little bit of Cliff's story uh, and kind of what happened to inspire him to become the bassist he became. Mm -hmm. I'll admit I didn't even really appreciate the talent and impact of Cliff until I was much older. I initially started off on 90s Metallica And it took me a couple years to really get into the 80s thrash that put them on the map. And quite frankly, I didn't even know at first that they had two bassists. I always thought it was just Jason. Ooh, you noob. And no dig on (laughs) Jason. He's a fine musician. I mean, granted, Jason. But he's no Cliff. No, he's not. But Jason was with Metallica for a very long time. Right. I didn't even realize he joined Metallica so early in their career. Right. 
Well, again, I didn't start listening to Metallica until I was like 12 or 13. And I didn't even... And all I knew was like Black Album and Load. And I didn't even know that they had a bassist before Jason until I watched the Behind the Music on them. And then I was like, bus accident? What? No! Who's Cliff? I don't even know, but I feel really bad. Yeah, they all seem really upset about it. Guess what? They still are. They're still upset. Because you never get over the loss of a very good friend. Nope. Oh, you don't. Side note, watch. <laughs> Side the f- note, you don't. Side note, you don't. But I also watched this interview with Kirk. Mm-hmm. Well, it was with the whole band, and Kirk was talking about Cliff, and he got really upset and emotional and choked oh, up. Baby Kirk. And then I started to cry a lot, and then Lars came on, and then <laughs> I just like, started to nope. laugh. I was like, "Oh, Lars, you're an idiot." So but you know what? Leave it to Lars to really dry up those tears right. and your vagina. Yeah. I was dry as the desert. Dry, dry it all up. Try it, just dry it right out. Cliff was born on February 10th, 1962, to parents Ray and Jan Burton, and was the youngest of their three kids. His interest in music began as a child when Ray had him start taking piano lessons. And those held up for a while, but by his teenage years, his interest in bass took over. And while it's likely Cliff would have been dedicated to his craft regardless... He was really pushed into overdrive after the death of his older brother, Scott, who died of a brain aneurysm at the age of 16. God, what a tragedy for their parents. Like, their parents have been through so much shit. Yeah. God, I feel awful for them. He found that this would be the best way to deal with his grief, saying, quote, I'm going to be the best basis for my brother, and began to practice about six hours every day. That's a lot. Especially when you're in high school. I can't even find six hours a day to sit in front of my TV and do nothing. Yeah. How did oh he God. find six hours a day to practice bass? When when I was real deep in it over the summer, I watched TV for six hours one week, and I was like, wow, that's a lot of TV that I yeah. watch. <laughs> this is a lot of TV. I don't I don't oh. know what to do. Uh, I do Something's wrong with me. Oh, God. In high school, he formed his first band with friends Jim Martin and Mike, Bor- and Mike Borden. If their names sound familiar to you... That's because they would later become the guitarist and drummer for band Faith No More. Oh. Mm-hmm. He was good friends with them. Hmm. First, they were known as Easy Street, named after a local strip club, but would later change their name to Agents of Misfortune. Of course they were named after a fucking strip club. Good for them. Like, young teenagers in the 70s. We're gonna name ourselves after a strip club. It's fucking cool, man. Yeah, man. We're so fucking edgy. edgy. <laughs> Eventually, they broke up, and everyone went their separate ways, which landed Cliff in a band called Trauma in 1982. He contributed Uh. to their songs, Such a Shame, and began to tour around the area with them. While his time in Trauma would prove to be fruitful, he did clash with the rest of the band on his style. See, what I mentioned earlier about a good bassist being someone who doesn't just chug along, but brings an extra depth to the music? Well, the latter was Cliff to a T. His bandmates would frequently reprimand him, especially the other guitarist, and he would yell at him for elaborate or for playing for his being part. too elaborate. Yeah, pretty much. He would say like, playing "Stop like playing star. my part, man!" And Cliff's like, "I'm not playing your part. I'm elaborating on it. I'm just merely building off what you're already playing because I'm a good bassist." This is the foundation foundations of jazz, you idiot. Yeah. Do you have any culture? No. No. Trauma. The trauma. <laughs> Trauma. Trauma did not have culture. No. Overall, trauma was going in a more commercial direction, stifling Cliff's creativity and desire to go harder and faster. 
So when he was spotted by James and Lars playing at the Whiskey A Go-Go, and who would later ask them him to join their band, he jumped at that opportunity. The Whiskey A Go-Go, where I'm sure Axel was having a hissy fit on the roof. I'm in the jungle! Where's my fucking ice cream? Yeah. Uh, give me my ice cream. <laughs> hey, um, Axel. <laughs> Wanna go get some ice cream? <laughs> that's Lars. If you couldn't tell by the chewing, <laughs> that was fucking Lars. Yeah, that's Lars. That's the only way I could do a Lars impression hey, uh, is insane amounts of chewing. You have to end every sentence with just an open mouth syllable. Hey, uh, hey yeah, uh, Axel. You know, uh, Axel. Go get some ice cream. Ice creamer. There you go. You got it. That's it. Nailed it. That's that's where I was going wrong in my Lars impression. <laughs> and then you just have to stand there with your mouth open, like flicking your gum back and forth with your tongue. I mean, you there guys you can't you see can't what we're doing, but, <laughs> but we are impression. both doing that. It's a good impression. With you your just hand, did it too, didn't you? With your hands on your hip. Oh, my God. Oh, God. I feel like I want to sue a file to file. <laughs> Sharing or a file sharing program. I think we need to stop doing these Lars impressions. Yeah. No, I'm gonna be Lars for Halloween. Oh I, I got it down pretty good. Oh my god, you do have you would have a good good Lars. Good Lars impression. Good wow. Why do we always let him derail us? Because it's so easy to make it's fun so of him. So easy. He makes it so easy. We all know how the rest of the story goes. Cliff joins Metallica, helps bring them to great success, and is tragically killed in a bus accident while on the road. So I don't want to focus on that. Instead, I'd like to talk about his impact in music going forward. First of all, Cliff was technically sound, no doubt. Someone who is as diligent as he is with practicing obviously would be. He wasn't afraid to experiment and use techniques and skills he developed to make a sound that was unlike what everyone else was doing. And it was pretty clear on the album Ride the Lightning. Yes, he was involved with Kill 'Em All, but Lightning was where we saw Metallica hit their metal stride. Mm -hmm. They really came together. In creation of Ride the Lightning, Cliff had more of a hand in writing the songs, especially with Call of the Cthulhu, Fade to Black, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and Creeping Death. So for about half the album, Cliff had a heavy hand in it. He had an extensive knowledge of music theory and especially loved harmonies. You have him to thank for all the wonderful harmonies that that band has. He turned James onto them and he's never really looked back. Mm-hmm. Say what you will, they know how to write a good harmony. Mm-hmm. I do think James is vocally very talented, even though he has gotten to the point where he just ends everything as, yeah. <laughs> he's really, he's really inspired by Michelle Branch. Yes. <laughs> but who isn't? Who isn't? Who isn't though? Cliff was creative, not just when it came to writing music, but also coming up with solutions for improving his overall sound. He wasn't happy with sounding like other bassists. He wanted to take his instrument that was usually a background character and make it a main player. His original bass was a Rickenbacker 4001. Really? Mm-hmm. Good for him. And it had a few modifications added to it throughout the years. One of them being a guitar pickup in the bridge of the bass, which was activated by a push-pull switch, and he used this kind of as his secret weapon to keep people guessing about his tone. That's why it sounded so just gritty and guttural. I want to say that Steve Harris did the same thing. Oh, I bet. I think (laughs) I'm pretty sure he did the same thing. That we're going to talk about probably did the same thing. Yeah, because they all kind of follow the same suit. I mean, a great bassist is someone who doesn't. Who knows I'm the bassist, but I could still be unique. Yeah. 
the a bad bassist is someone who's like, I'm just the bassist. I'm just if here you to believe you're just along. the bassist, you're gonna just be the bassist. Don't be just the bassist. Be fucking awesome. We need stickers that say just the bassist with the red circle and a cross on it. Yeah, you're not just the bassist. You're not. Be better than that. He retired this bass after the recording of Light- Ride the Lightning, though, due to malfunctions with his modifications. <laughs> Aww. Yeah. He tried. He did try. There were a few other types of basses that he he tried, but after getting endorsed by Aria, he stuck to that brand to record Master of Pup- Puppets and the subsequent tour. Oh. I think Cliff liked modifications so much because while he was a proud bassist, he wanted to think outside the box and give the bass more of a feel of a lead guitar. There are certain songs that he plays on and you would be convinced that it's Kirk or James because you would think that's not the bass making that sound. Mm-hmm. But listen to songs like Orion or the beginning of Anesthesia Pulling Teeth to hear that that's Cliff being awesome. So I think it's pretty interesting that he plays a Rickenbacker because I have honestly, to in my experience, I've never seen a metal bassist use a Rickenbacker or a oh. metal guitarist use one. I'm I'm sure that I'm wrong, but I personally have never seen that before. Interesting. When I think of Rickenbacker, I think of like the Beatles. Oh or, yes. Or even like Sleater Kinney. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't think of Metallica at well, all. That's probably why he did so many. I bet that was just the first bass he ever got. Probably. Or one of the and first And he learned bases. to make it sound good in a metal band. Right. He which made is the mod- great. That's probably why he made all those modifications. And then once they kind of hit it big, he's like, oh, I can buy a new bass. <laughs> I don't have to keep doing this. And just a quick thing to note, uh, because Cliff is well known for his headbanging. Apparently, he would tell people, like his family and friends, I can't physically stop myself from headbanging. Like, it just would help him, like, keep time. He was so into the music and so into the groove that it almost helped him feel the other parts Mm -hmm. if he was kind of headbanging and moving and grooving along to them. He could not just stand still. That's... You know what? Probably, like, some restless leg syndrome, but whatever. But you know what? Every drummer I have ever met in my life has, like, a weird face thing that they do. Yeah. That they can't help but do... Every time a guitarist has a solo, they have a weird face that they do that they can't help. This is just the Cliff's equivalent of a weird facial tick. So is that why whenever I would play percussion back in music theory, I would just make this deer in the headlights face of... Because that's 100% my percussion yeah, face is just... That is your facial tick is deer in the headlights. Holy shit. All I'm my shit friends myself in face. class would make fun of me because we would, you know, music, half of music theory is learning percussion and learning rhythm and beats. And so when we'd have to do percussion exercises, everyone would stop and look at me and like, you just make the most ridiculous face. Like you look <laughs> like you're going to shit your pants. You look like somebody that got killed by some weird mystical monster in the woods of some Norwegian country in and a this weird is the last face I made in a weird horror movie, and that's the last face that you made when you saw this 
fucking psycho creature. Yeah, that's fair. That's accurate. <laughs> that's not the way I would want anybody to describe my face. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's me. That's, there you go. <laughs> Many like to speculate on where Metallica would be today if Cliff never died. And this was an event that his bandmates understandably never recovered from. Trust me. I get it. To their treatment of Jason Newstead, to the therapy sessions and some kind of monster. Oh, boy. That grief runs hard and it runs deep. deep. But I would like to think that we will never make some kind of monster. God willing. Who knows? Maybe th- maybe we're in the thick of our some kind of monster. Oh, God. <gasps> you know what, though? We're still not Lars. Nobody can ever be Lars. No. So everybody on this planet has that going for them. Hey, when you wake up tomorrow, no. I'm not Lars. When, when you get up and you drag yourself to the bathroom, try and get into the shower to go to fucking work, just look at yourself and go, at least I'm not Lars. There you go. That's it. Already a step above him today. There you go. I feel better already. So perhaps there are some things that never would have happened. Saint Anger for one. But then we'd also never get the Black Album. I believe we'd still have the live F- S&M performance as Cliff loved classical, and he would have thought that was amazing. And there's a good chance, too, that maybe he would have left after a while just to pursue new music endeavors. But at the heart of it all, his loss was tragic, not just because any death is, but because he had so much potential and would have contributed so much to music. And now we'll never know, but at least we have the few things he did get to stamp his name on to enjoy. And see the ripple effect move through metal, rock, and beyond. Indeed. So, to Cliff. To Cliff. Ching, ching. Ching, ching. And I think before we uh, go into our next artist, we both need a refill because that shit was empty. Mm-hmm. So we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back. All right. And we back. Oh, hi. Slapping the bass. We're just over here slapping the bass, you know, like you do. Oh, that. Yeah, that's what that is. All that bass slapping. I actually wanted to find a beer that had something to do with slap in it. Could not. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. That'd be difficult. Who do we got next on the bassist stage? Well, next on tap, we have... We have a modern lady. Ooh. A lady. Yeah, make sure you move your head a lot while you're saying it. Yeah. Her name is Esperanza Spaulding. Yes, it is. Which is a fucking great name, first of all. Is it her real name? It is her real name. Oh, God. And you've probably never heard of Esperanza Spaulding, unless you're into modern jazz. Yeah. And it's true, she's an amazing bass player. Upright bass, no less. Although... She has been known to uh, jam on the electric. Oh, she does both. She does. But she is, she's quite notable for playing upright bass. Honestly, that's a life goal for me. I would love to learn upright bass. Yeah. That's like the sexiest thing, I and think, then a woman pe- playing upright bass. And then your Peter Steele impression would come full circle. <laughs> Wait, did he play upright yes, bass? Yes, he did. But he played it like an electric bass, so he carried it. <laughs> he would oh. sling it over his back. <laughs> But he was, like, massive, so. (laughs) I've got my bass. I'm going to play now. 
Listen to me. Listen to me. Play my bass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, here we go. I need to be more Peter Steele. Yeah. So okay she she plays upright. She plays electric, but she does so much more than that. She's a talented jazz singer and multi instrumentalist, and her songwriting is on point, bridging the gap between jazz and mainstream pop rock worlds. Esperanza was born and raised in Portland, Oregon, but this wasn't the picture-perfect Portlandia version of Portland that we all think of now. There's some parts that aren't that great. Mm. Mm. And back in 1984, when she was born, there was rampant drug use, violence and gangs, not to mention the skinheads and political corruption. Oh. Esperanza grew up in the King neighborhood, which was right in the thick of it, and by her single mom, no less. Oh, jeez. She's considered a child prodigy, having reproduced Beethoven by ear on her mother's piano (gasps) when she was a kid. Then she saw Yo-Yo Ma performing cello on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and she knew that's what she wanted to do. There was a bit lost in translation, and she ended up with a violin instead. Okay. But she taught herself how to play it, and by age five... She was performing with the Chamber Music Society of Oregon. Get the fuck out. Yeah. Five. Taught herself how to play violin at age four. And by five, she was with a fucking chamber group. Fuck that. This makes me feel like garbage. Like, good for you, but also I feel like garbage. What have I done with my life? Nothing. We have a podcast. We have a podcast where we talk about people that are clearly much better than we are. Oh, my God. Yeah, I kind of hate myself, too, now. (laughs) All right, everybody who hates us, I get it now. (laughs) No, that's different. That's very different. That is very different. By the time she was 15, she made Concert Master. Jesus. But she realized it wasn't violin or oboe or clarinet or piano that she was interested in. Jesus. It was the upright double bass that she really fell in love with. Girl really went soul searching for her instrument. Yeah, she did. for her. She went through the gamut of instruments until she found it. But, hey... Learn them if you can. If you're into that shit, smoke them if you got them. Exactly. (laughs) It was while she was attending the performing arts school Northwest Academy where she stumbled upon a double bass in an empty classroom. A teacher heard her and offered to teach her the blues, after which she got daily lessons from them. And that's so different from what she's been doing before with the classical. Yeah, very different. But she was getting really bored with the classical because she's a fucking prodigy and she gets bored with shit easily. Yeah. She has to challenge herself. Yeah. And the love for the bass is real. For Esperanza, there is an intimacy she felt with the instrument that entranced her, once calling it a musically orgasmic instrument to play. I could see that. I'd fucks with that. Yeah. I'd fucks with that upright bass. Hell yeah. By now, music encompassed her entire life and regular school wasn't challenging enough to keep her attention. So she left school at 16, got her GED, and enrolled in the Portland State University to study classical music. Okay. She also joined some local bands, making a name for herself, playing in clubs around Portland. Here, she expanded from classical to more modern musical pursuits, dipping her toes into funk, jazz, and rock and blues. Mm-hmm. Within a year, she had transferred to Berklee College of Music on a full scholarship, immersing herself in jazz and honing her amazing vocal talent along with her bass skills. Almost immediately after she graduated in 2005, Berkeley turned around and hired her as a professor. What? Their youngest ever at age 20. Jesus. Yeah. They knew what was up. I mean, they they were, were like, like, oh, no, oh, no, you're not leaving. You're, yeah, you can nope, come nope, back nope, nope. here and teach. That'd be great. Yeah. At 22, she released her first album, 2006's Junjo, to critical acclaim. It was pretty standard 
jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the basics. She did some covers. She did some original stuff. Mm -hmm. But her second album, Esperanza, was released in 2008. It had a noticeably more mainstream sound in effort to appeal to a broader audience. And it worked. She became one of the most Googled people in February 2010. Nice. All of a sudden, she was invited to play jazz festivals and play alongside R&B greats like Patti LaBelle and Alicia Keys. Yes. Oh, man. A duet with her and Alicia Keys is probably freaking gorgeous. I think she did. She did a Prince tribute with Patti LaBelle, Alicia Keys, and somebody else I can't remember. I'm here for that. Yeah. We here could, for that. We could probably YouTube it. You could probably find it. I'm gonna. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She gained so much praise that in 2011, she was nominated for and won the Best New Artist Award at the Grammys. Yes. She beat out some tough competition, including Justin Bieber. Ugh. His fans were so mad about it that they flooded her with online hate. Go fuck yourself, 10-year-old. They even vandalized her Wikipedia page, changing it to say she should die in a hole. What the fuck? Yeah. You're fucking garbage. When it oh, comes- also, look at your fucking king, Justin Bieber, who is just a fucking mess of a human. She also- and his music's terrible. She also beat out like Florence and the Machine and I think Drake or somebody. Oh, but, like- Drake's not really all that talented. He was Neither really was good at playing a cripple on Degrassi, though. <laughs> Always comes back to Degrassi. It will never admit if you stop letting it come back to Degrassi, <laughs> then then the terrorists then win. Yeah. You know who else was on Degrassi? Taking Back Sunday. Wait, really? Yeah, they were. So was Jane Son Bob. Oh. Yeah. Kevin Everybody Smith, was on, everybody fucking, was on Degrassi. fucking Degrassi. Uh. But yeah, like Florence and the Machine, insanely talented, yeah. wonderful group. Yeah. But this was also 2011 Justin Bieber. Like, he wasn't that good. He was just popular because he was a cute kid. You know? Yeah. He's still not good. He's still not not good. I listened to a cover of him doing Fast Car by Tracy Chapman. Oh. Oh, I wanted to just throw my fucking laptop out a window. If you think the original makes you want to kill yourself... Justin Bieber version will definitely make you want to kill yourself. But not you- for the same reason. It'll make you want to kill Justin Bieber. Not yeah. myself. Yeah, Justin you know Bieber. It, it turns you from suicide to homicide. Yeah. There you go. I guess maybe that was his point? I don't know. Oh, God. Maybe. Woof. But anyway, she took it in stride because that seems to be the kind of lady she is. She's a classy, grade A she woman. She is impossibly cool and exceptionally smart. She seems to have this inner peace that I would never, ever be able to achieve because Mm. I am just turmoil and just a floating dumpster fire in the pit of my stomach. I think that's why her music is so soothing. No matter how experimental or weird it is, it sounds, it's just so soothing and somehow it makes you feel like a deeper connection with yourself. Yeah. She's so self-assured, even in her music. Yeah. And her next album, Emily's D Plus Evolution, was definitely experimental and weird. It's basically all of her musical education crashing up against her modern leanings. Like in this clip from Funk the Fear. It's getting like 
it's staying real funky, but her vocals are just really like smooth and flowing. She has a really amazing voice that is very Ella Fitzgerald. Mm. Like she can do so much with it, but no matter what she does with it, it sounds silky. It sounds smooth. It's it's just mm. amazing. It does go on like butter. Yeah, it is. Emily's D plus evolution is a concept album, a story told through the eyes of Esperanza's alter ego named Emily, which is actually her real metal middle name, uh-huh. her, it, but also her metal her name. Also her metal name. <laughs> Esperanza is not quite metal enough. You need to go like bring it down, Emily. <laughs> yeah. In this situation, Emily is the metal name. She dyes her hair black and has yeah. some sweet tats on her yeah. knuckles. Like what was was it, Emily Strange? Yeah, that was the hot topic thing for a while when yeah, we were Emily teenagers. the Strange. Emily the Strange. Okay. Oh my God! Yes, yeah. Esperanza describes Emily as a fairy, not a literal one, but someone that isn't super serious, but also isn't afraid to be blunt about controversial issues. It only makes sense that the album was co-produced with longtime David Bowie collaborator Tony Visconti. Oh shit! Yeah, nice. It was her and Tony Visconti, and that was it. Oh man, that's solid. Truly, this album is amazing. Take the song Unconditional Love. It's a well-crafted song with a groove and melody you can't get out of your head. It's perfect for modern radio, and I really wish modern radio would play her music more. You could see her touring with Janelle Monet or even oh. TV on the radio, but it still has that old-school jazz influence. And the crazy thing, especially with this particular album, is that you can hear a lot of progressive rock influence in it. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think especially with the bass alone, yeah. the way she walks the bass and it's doing its own thing, yet still complementing what's going on around it. And still in the spotlight. Yes. Yeah. Her most recent album, 12 Little Spells, is also a concept album. Each song focuses on a different body part and is accompanied by art and videos that correspond accordingly. Oh, For instance, the song Lest We Forget represents blood, which we will hear right now. But you can hear kind of like the evolution of her sound through this. She started out doing Mm. very standard jazzy stuff and then got into this very experimental stage and now is into that slow groove with a lot of very heartfelt feeling behind what she's singing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's evolving, definitely. She's starting from one place and learning to kind of feel her oats in different areas, which is good because she's also approaching it with some confidence. Yeah. So the entire video for Lest We Forget is rendered in shades of red, even though she's hanging out in a forest through the entirety of it. The Tide Is Over is another track on this album that represents the mouth, and the entire video has a large mouth looming over everything, singing words into the song. That's terrifying. It is kind of terrifying. And it looks like a very old, early 80s video game. Yeah. In a weird way. Oh. But it also kind of reminds me of parts of the Dark Crystal. Okay. I don't know. It's very strange. But yeah, each track on this album represents a different body part. So there's like 
like lower abdominal <laughs> area and like the mind and different I feel like I'm like in a that. yoga class. Yeah. A little bit. You could listen to this in yoga class and mm. it would be very soothing. Probably. The most interesting about 12 Little Spells, however, is the fact that Esperanza didn't play bass on it at all. Mm. Her writing is still quite prevalent, and there's no mistaking that this is Esperanza Spalding production, but she made the conscious decision not to play the instrument because basically she was out of practice. Oh, shit. She normally puts three or four hours of practice a day into it, but leading up to this record, she wasn't able to do that. And in her own words, without that level of dedication, it's burdensome and stifling to play it. Mm. She doesn't feel free enough to really let her emotions and whatever flow through her fingers into the bass. That's fair. So if you're just out, you're just out of that groove. So her focus was on writing and singing. Okay. She has expressed that she may not go back to playing the bass anytime <gasps> soon, but eventually she will. Because you know what, kids? If you don't use it... You lose it. It's true. It is. In the meantime, she continues to distance herself from the title of artist or musician hmm. and, ex- and is expanding towards something more concept-driven. Interesting. She's... And she's young and she's very... But she, she is, seems like someone who can't stay in the same spot. But, and I don't mean that in a bad way. But she is on such a different level intellectually that I I feel like Wayne and Garth in front of Alice Cooper. I am not fucking worthy. Yeah. And you know what? I will Millie Wake all over that shit. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm she fine. will Millie Wake all over us, actually. I, she will. That's exactly it. Yeah. She will Millie Wake all over. She can Millie Wake all over me if she wants to. Let it flow over yep. me. Yep. Esperanza Spalding, wash over me like a fever dream. Like you are too talented for this damn world. She really is. And seriously, check out her music. It is really fucking good. Yeah. It's She's fucking good. Insanely talented. Yes, she is. And her last few albums have like I really hope that they are the brain parasite that gets me out of the oh my now. God. <laughs> the yeah. now like box that i am stuck in i think yeah. i think they will i think, I think they, they will. will because i'm ready to fucking dive headfirst into her discography it's so yeah. good so fucking good yeah well between the two that i've been listening to i'm like all right i'm out of the now hole which is great yep. <laughs> but let's talk about a bassist who was an influence on at least two of the others everybody that we talked about fucking everybody probably probably Esperanza as well i'm sure yes this bassist was an influence on everyone we've talked about so far and us and us. And us. Oh, I love him. His skills can't be denied, his hard work and talent, and his sweet-tempered Canadian nature. Hey. That's right. Aww. I'm talking about the master, Getty Lee. Getty Lee. Fight me. <laughs> I'm not. No, I know I'm you're not, not but I'm looking at you who just rolled their <laughs> eyes. No, I don't think... You know what? Fuck you. Stop listening to us. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. here. I don't care what you're saying to your podcast player right now. Rush is a great band. Yes, they are. They're an amazing band. And not only is Getty their bassist, he is also the iconic voice of the band and keyboardist. Yeah. Dude is covering all basses. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go too deep into the story of Rush. I am certain we're going to do a series on them. I don't even... Oh, yes. It might even be more than two episodes because Rush is a... A deep, long history. There is a lot, and you can't cover Rush as a whole without covering Rush as separate 
people. Right, because so. every single member is insanely talented. And they all have like crazy stories. I I only know a little bit of Neil Peart's yeah. story, but it's pretty intense. Right. So So I'm not gonna go super deep into Getty's today because I have no I I have no doubt that we will mm-hmm. go deeper and honestly I don't know. He's it's a lot. It's a lot to go into Getty Lee guys, but also it's wonderful. It's a wonderful hole to find it's myself very sweet in. Man. Oh god, he's so sweet. <laughs> oh my god, if you just look into the three members of Rush all together, you're like I just want to take you all home. I want to put you in my put pocket. Put you in my pocket and we can ride home oh together. Oh my god, and they just be all so fucking we'll just nice. Take bike rides together and we can go on hikes and you this can is play what with I my think dog. Canada is. It's just Rush. <laughs> If only. Right? Like Rush and Trailer Park Boys, Strange Brew. I mean. Oh my God. If I could like go to Canada and it would just be Trailer Park Boys with the a soundtrack of Rush the whole time. Yeah. I'd be fine. Can we do that? Does yeah. this does does well, this exist? Well, let's see how 2020 goes and then maybe we'll go. Let's <laughs> okay. figure it out. All right. So Getty Lee Weinrib was born on July 29th, 1953 to parents Morris and May Weinrib. Jewish Holocaust survivors from Poland yep. who managed to live through several concentration camps until the end of the war. And after that, they emigrated to Canada. Didn't... Oh, okay, so I, I... A while ago, like, briefly looked up his history for some reason. And didn't... Because like, it's Getty Lee. Because it's Getty Lee. And didn't, like, they go to one concentration camp together and then they got, they got separated, separated and then after the war was over they f- he f- his dad fucking found his mom right and then they got and married. then they got married it yep. was like the most amazing love story that yeah. they make movies out of first of all getty lee already a magical man he's yeah. a magical man because his parents had a magical story they did although i also don't want to call it magical because the holocaust was a fucking horror shit show so maybe i don't shouldn't say magical i should say harrowing uh, harrowing, but with a sweet ending. Well, tinge maybe? of sweet to it. I don't know their relationship. Surprisingly so. hopeful and positive. Yeah. Well, I'll get into it. Getty's original name was Gary. However, due to his mother's heavy accent, she pronounced his name Getty. Getty. So it's Getty Lee, but it's supposed to be Gary <laughs> yeah. Lee. I imagine her being like very uh, Polish. Very Polish. And She's just, quite Polish. And just screaming at him, going, Getty! Well, it stuck with everyone that knew him so much that eventually he had it legally changed when he grew up. Legally? So legally Holy his name shit. is Getty. Good for him. Right? This, of course. That's how you own a nickname. Take that nickname and just turn it into your actual name. Yeah. Well, like I said, his parents were Holocaust sur- survivors. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, had a huge effect on Getty. And his father died when he was a preteen due to complications from his years in of imprisonment. So, Whoa. like, Getty was only, like, 12 or 13 when his dad passed away. and this I can his... only imagine what those complications were. <sighs> oh, my God. Especially if he ran into Mangala. This left his mother alone to fend for herself and three children. His father was a musician, so Getty was clearly influenced by him and understandably inspired by the loss of his father to spend the rest of his life dedicated to music to honor Morris. Aww. Again, I guess my some of my favorite bassists are the ones who became bassists because of death. I don't know. Or because they want to honor somebody that died. They, yeah, yeah. Because Cliff, yeah, did, a, Cliff did the, the same, same thing. thing. Even though he had been learning instruments in school, like drums, trumpet, and clarinet, hmm, him and Osbronson oh. do have a lot in common. He felt unsatisfied and took up both piano and guitar outside of that. 
Getty eventually took up the bass in high school. He was heavily influenced by British prog rock and tried to emulate artists like Jack Bruce of Queen and John Entwistle of The Who. Oh. He was approached by his friend, Alex Lifeson, to join his band as their leader, lead singer slash bassist had just left. They were called Rush, and they had a few local gigs coming up and could use the help, so Getty agreed. No problem. That's fine. And he never looked back. That's fine. I'll just slide into these DMs. Pretty much. And Getty <laughs> slid into Rush's he DMs. He slid into their DMs real, real smooth. smooth. <laughs> Rush was a power trio, with Getty taking over both bass and lead vocals. At times, they had considered adding a fourth member to relieve him, but they already felt so comfortable with what was going on, and they thought changing it wouldn't work as well. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, they didn't, because it wouldn't have worked. I know I should talk about his bass skills, but I do want to take a moment to acknowledge Getty's voice. Dude has a three-octave range. Yeah. And a counter-tenor falsetto, falsetto that gives Rush its very distinctive sound. You hear Getty Lee and you know you're listening to Rush. Yeah, he has a very distinct uh, tone, timbre. Yeah. I don't know all the of difference. It. His voice yeah, in general just, is just, it's all Getty Lee. It's all unique to him. And to anyone else, there's no way anybody can replicate that. I like mean, there are people who imitate it and mock it, but... It's a bit nasally, but it's also powerful. Which... And as he's gotten older, his range has obviously subsided. But in some ways, it's kind of made some of the songs have more lasting power, I think. Yeah. His bass skills are unique as well. He is known to play the strings very heavy and use a lot of high treble. He was cited as an inspiration to Cliff Burton, and that can really be seen in the fact that Getty has taken his bass parts and really turned them into something more of a lead guitar. Mm-hmm. Because again, this is like a theme. Yeah, with honestly, our like people. all of our guitar or all of our bassists are just like lead guitar is cool and all, but let me be a bassist so I can like just do my own thing and go fuck yourself. Yeah, and so and I can do. impress all you fucking bitches and your haters. Because people expect the lead guitarist to do like a sweet, amazing solo and just like just do these amazing arpeggios and shit. So when they see a bassist doing it, they think. Oh, you're talented because everyone has low expectations for the basses. Yeah, which is so. Bullshit. I guess it's kind of easy to blow their minds a little bit. A little <laughs> if bit you're basses, but also these people that we're highlighting were legit, amazing, unique artists. Right, they were talented in music, not just in their, you know, not just in bass, yeah, but also in so many other ways. And like Cliff did later. Getty started off with a Rickenbacker 4001 bass. Oh, mm-hmm. see, I am wrong. I guess so. He switched around basses for a bit until the early 90s when he began using the Fender Jazz bass pretty exclusively so he could get back to that signature treble sound. Uh-huh. In 1977, with the release of A Farewell to Kings, Getty added synthesizers to their setup so that they could enrich, enrich their sound. And you may wonder how the hell he could play a keyboard and a bass at the same time. Hmm, well, how did he? He used pedals to control the synthesizer. So all at one time, he was able to play bass, keyboards, and sing. How? How do you do that? I can't even clap my hands and sing at the same time. He's Getty fucking Lee. That's how. He's soaking up all the talent. He is he honestly soaking up all the talent. Yeah. Yeah, I don't appreciate that. All of it. <laughs> Some musicians will simplify what they're playing if they're also the lead singer. Mm-hmm. And after all, you're multitasking, so it's totally understandable. You yeah, want to like, sound good, 
So why make things more complicated than you have to? Yeah, even Esperanza Spalding would talk about how difficult it is to play bass and sing at the same time. Because not only... If you're playing rhythm guitar or lead guitar, you're probably doing something pretty similar to pretty what you're Pretty close to what you're singing, yeah. Bass, you're doing... Especially if you're a talented, good bassist, you are doing something completely different. Yeah, you're doing the rhythm. You're not doing the melody. Right. So it's harder to... It's easier to keep time in your head, but it's harder to focus on your own flow and make yeah. it sound natural. I can't even picture trying to sing and play at the same time, let alone play bass. Well, Getty is singing classic songs on and off stage, and he plays through chip triplets, quadruplets, extra runs, added notes. He doesn't get intimidated by the larger task at hand. In fact, it's a welcome challenge to him. Why can't I be that talented at something? <laughs> I want to be Getty Lee when I grow up. Right? Really listen to a Rush song, like YYZ. Getty is clearly doing his own thing on bass, but it doesn't sound out of sync with what Alex and Neil are doing. He is clearly working with them to complement the sound. Another great example is his bass solo in Time Machine. <laughs> busy being in awe of how fucking awesome he is i am i just can't think of anything else but how awesome getty lee is. besides how awesome getty lee is i i really fucking love getty lee you're getting a boner i have an odd crush on getty lee and he's probably really short and he's probably just like a sweet older canadian man but when you watch him play bass yeah basement I wouldn't say flooded, but there's a leak. There's a leak for sure. There's a leak in the pipes. There's a leak in the pipes. I'm yeah. going to need a plumber to come fix that. Your floor is wet. Your floor is damp. Floor is damp. Floor is damp. Basement damp. <laughs> Not flooded. Just damp. Just damp. But I'm still here for it. Yeah. It's kind of like, remember my like weird, but I kind of hate it sort of crush on paul hollywood yes i found out over this weekend that he's only five foot seven and i'm like mm. no 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 i'm done I'm done oh. with this no see i i imagine like getty lee's probably like five six and i'll still like <laughs> i'm still kind of into it though maybe like a young getty lee he, he was cute in the day he's still cute no, now he's still cute, but like i don't know i don't but it's like that weird daddy thing. Yeah, and I don't have Not a daddy thing. That. I don't We're have a daddy that. thing. Okay. Yeah. Wow, sorry. We talked a lot about how much <laughs> I apparently want to fuck Kenny <laughs> Lee. But watch him play bass and tell me you don't feel the same way. He got the magic fingers. You know, bassists got magic fingers. They do. But also, it's amazing to watch somebody that talented. And he looks like he's just having fun. It doesn't look like a task. It doesn't look like a chore. He's just having a really good time up there. Which also makes me hate him a little bit because, like, god damn it, this is so easy for you. About all the all the bases that we've looked at tonight is just, all of them are just having 
fun. Mm-hmm. And that's something you can kind of respect about a good bassist is just having a good time. Fucking Esperanza Spalding is just having a good old fucking She's time. She's just jamming around the stage She's... like, look at me, I'm having fun. Yeah. Cliff is just headbanging his face off. Yeah. Steve is running around with Boost Boost. <laughs> and then Getty's just like, hey, I'm just having a great time and I'm, I'm just, jamming. I'm Everybody's making people, I'm making people happy. And they're into it. Yep. You know, sometimes you watch, like, a lead guitarist who just takes himself so fucking seriously. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's like, I and get it. Just, you're feeling the emotion, but can a, you have fun? But they're a total fucking tryhard. And that's yeah. just not... It's... You are trying so hard to impress people that you're not feeling what you are playing. Yeah. Whereas, I guess, that is kind of a luxury of a bassist is because no one expects anything from you. You can kind of just do what you want to... You can do what you feel. And yeah. if it works... It works and you're happy and you're having fun. Nobody's looking at you saying that, man, he 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 botched that fucking solo. But I have a very good respect for bassists who are just like the fucking solid rock of the band. Right? Like John McVie from oh. Fleetwood Mac. Oh, he doesn't go John crazy. McVie. And I actually kind of wish we'll do this episode again. Oh, yeah. And I'll we'll probably do talk about one. Well, one of us will talk about John McVie. Yeah. He is actually severely talented. And he I think is. he gets underrated a lot. And he has written a lot of very good songs and very good parts of Fleetwood Mac songs. And I don't think he, I don't think he gets the praise he deserves. But I also don't think he really cares to yeah, get it very think, much. I don't think he pushes for it. Which is he fine. knows what he has contributed. And. He knows what he's done, and he doesn't need people to, you know, codify him or whatever. He has his boathouse. He has his boathouse. He's really happy there. And that's all he needs. And, you know, he's a solid rock for Fleetwood Mac, and I think that's what Fleetwood Mac needs. Yeah. So it depends on the needs of the band also. True, true, true. Well, bringing it back really quick to close out for Geddy Mm -hmm. Lee. You know, he thinks outside the box in so many ways. In the 90s, he opted out of a traditional bass amps on stage and instead had the bass input to the touring front of house console to improve the control and balance of the sound. But he's left with all this empty space on his side of the stage. So Mm -hmm. what's he supposed to do? Well, he decided to fill it with random objects like refrigerators and washers and dryers. (laughs) He'll just put random shit over there. Apparently one concert they had chickens. Live live chickens chickens? that people would tend to. Okay. Rush is the weirdest, most amazing band. I can imagine refrigerators and washers and dryers could be pretty annoying for the roadie crew. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they fucking hated it. (laughs) Like, why am I lugging this fucking refrigerator everywhere? I hope they stored some beer in there. At least if it was a working refrigerator and you had some, like, good food and some beer in there. Right. Worth it. Anything else? Not worth no, it. Not so much. Maybe some cold cuts. Some cold cuts. and. But I also think Getty Lee earned it. Yeah. I think Getty Lee gets to do whatever the fuck he wants. Because if you look, like, Rush would not be Rush without Getty Lee. I mean, Rush would not be Rush without any of the three of them. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, like, just everything that Getty has brought to that band to make it its unique powerhouse. Mm-hmm. you got to fucking respect that. And he's the bassist. He is the backbone. He is the face of Rush. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, think about that, guys. Basis. I like to think that we have presented you all with four amazingly talented, very interesting, dedicated bassists, and you cannot deny how good they are. And by all means, these are just four of our favorites among 
many, many. and I'm sure we will be doing this episode again, much like the now fucking episode. Yeah, right. But I think it's nice to give to give them their due because I don't think bassists get enough love. They don't. They get shit on a lot. Yeah, and they don't deserve it. Someone who like decided to start learning bass a few years ago, and then everyone was like, "Oh, that's cute." Yeah. Oh, you're gonna learn bass? What are you gonna sit and stand in the back and just like hit a note every minute or so? And I'm like. It's not how bass works, guys. It's actually very complicated. Bass is one of the hardest things for me to learn because you don't follow. It's not like learning guitar where you have the melody or it's not like learning drums where it's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, yeah, four. Like, like, bass is like you're working in the middle of that Yeah. if you want to be a good bass. You bridge that gap. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I would not say I would say I have rudimentary skills at best. Yeah. But I mean, hopefully I'm going to start working on the more... After everything, after the summer we've had, I'm like, I need to get back in music. So, yeah. also, it'd be nice to know to think, I am a podcast. <laughs> I also play the bass. Yeah. Um, oh, God. No, I have nothing in my itinerary that, like, would make anyone respect me on face value. I was in a class for work recently, and we were supposed to tell each other at our table a unique fact about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And all I could come up with was, I have a podcast. And half the people at your desk are like, what the fuck is a podcast? Yes. Both of them were like, what's a podcast? I'm like, uh-huh, I don't have time to explain this to you. Oh, guys, we just but, need to get this done. But anyway, with basis come a lot of funny jokes, too. Oh. Like, how many basses does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many? None. The pianist will do it with his left hand. Damn! <laughs> sick burn. That is a sick burn. Sick burn. Wow. <laughs> Ouch. Say that one to Getty Lee. No. Say that to, say, say that to fucking Steve, man. No, absolutely not. I'm sure they've heard it a million times. Yeah, anyway. they're like, yeah, we get it. They're no like, one we, takes it seriously. we made that joke up. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I bet a bassist did make that fucking joke Just up. Just to troll the other bassist. Like, you know what? Let's just own it. They They're embrace fucking it. savage. A good bassist will just embrace it and say, all right, you think that little of me? I get it. I get it. Oh, but, but gonna... did you see this fucking sweet solo? Yeah. I get it. I get it. But I got the magic fingers and I was with your girlfriend last night. Ow! Your girlfriend wasn't <laughs> complaining about my skills last night. She likes my magic fingers, bitch. Mm-hmm. But seriously, though, bassists got magic fingers. Yeah, they do. Yeah. They're strong magic fingers. I'm going to go practice now. I'm strong hands. Yeah. I think I need to go practice now. Okay. After all this talk about Getty Lee <laughs> and basis. I'm, I'm going to go practice Is that now. a euphemism, Maggie? That's a euphemism. I'm going to go touch myself. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe play bass. Well, I guess that is it for basis today. Yeah. But like I said, we'll visit it again. Till next time. Till next time. But uh, thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate you so much. Without your support, we would, you know, we would just be doing this. And nobody would be listening. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for listening. Honestly, thank you for listening and, for and just humoring us. We appreciate it. Why don't you uh, feel free to go on and visit our website, www.rockcandypodcast.com. And there we've got kind of your one-stop shop for our social media links, and our episodes, which you can comment on. You can even drop, drop us an email, should you want to drop us an email. If you really are digging on us, you want to 
skedaddle yourself over to iTunes, drop us that sweet five-star review because your reviews help us get noticed. So if you want to help use us, them. we could use some sweet reviews, mm-hmm. boost us up into the stratosphere a little bit more. That would be so well. Yes. Because honestly, that's what gets us noticed. That's what gets us climbing them music history charts. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, gets us some more listeners yeah and if you're into music podcasts and music history go visit our network pantheon podcast and there are so many shows there that are just really full of amazing information i've learned a lot from our sister podcasts so please go check them out they are fantastic and we're really lucky to be a part of such a great network of people they're wonderful. They really are. And I appreciate them. I do too. And also if you want to give us some well-earned doze. Doze? Do you mean money? <laughs> money. Cash monies. <laughs> Cash monies. Then you should head over to Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Podcast, And you can give us some money and we will give you some really cool shit mm-hmm. in return. And you can get some bonus episodes, monthly bonus episodes and some swag and some good shit. Yeah. We got that stuff for you guys. So feel free to check that out. And thank you to everyone who does give. You guys are so fucking helpful. So thank you. Yes. We love you. <laughs> Super helpful. Especially when the first month first of the month comes around. I have to clutch. Rent. You bitches are clutch. <laughs> thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> no, thank you guys so much, honestly. So tune in next week for more wild wacky tales. I'm sure it'll be fun times had by all. And indeed un- it will be. Yeah. And until then, party on Ashley. Party on Mingy. And party on you crazy kids out there. <laughs> Welcome to the ice cream, baby! 